Again, I encourage all businesses that are allowed to open to do so only if they can follow the guidelines to keep West Virginia safe. All right. Thanks for joining me again on a another skipped lunch break. Um, hopefully, it, at some point, we'll be joined by um, one of my clients in the uh, in the efforts at destroying the governor's um, executive orders. Um, let's see. We might have another. Let's see. I'd like to also have. Marshall Wilson on here as well, if we can get him hooked up. Can we bear with me just one second? This is the first time I've tried to do this with guests. Okay, well, we're waiting on here, West Virginia delegate Jim Butler, who's been just a, a one of our patriot legislators who has uh, been one of the plaintiffs in our writ of mandamus that was filed against the governor. And also uh, Marshall Wilson, who was the, the primary plaintiff who first came to me to see what we could do to, to uh, challenge the governor's executive orders. Um, hey, Beth Carter, thanks for the uh, comment. I appreciate that. Uh, give them you know, a few more minutes to get on here. There we go. Oh, there's Marshall. Hey, John. Hey, Marshall, how are you doing? Pretty good. I guess that light behind me is kind of distracting, huh? Oh, that's all right. Hey, hey, uh, like I was telling uh, Delegate Butler, if if uh, Big Jim can can do a, a live conference, uh, live cast conference, we ought to be able to do it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that's a pretty sweet shirt there. Uh, yeah, like, you like that? So you've been busy. Yeah. Yeah, I did two radio interviews this morning, uh, you know, uh, put a post out to my team, to let them know what was going on and uh, uh, what we're trying to accomplish now that uh, we've done our best to get the signatures in. Of course, the real issue here is that, uh, that our opportunities to gather signatures were strictly curtailed by the, by the governor's edicts. So he said, you can't gather in groups of more than 10. It makes it awful hard to gather signatures. Uh, also, you know, you yeah, you can't go out and knock doors if you're locked in your basement. And uh, then, of course, the fact that he moved the primary by a month, we lost a month of signature gathering time. So in response to those uh, unconstitutional, uh, those unconstitutional restrictions on our, our natural rights, um, I have sued the Secretary of State to uh, for ballot access to have my name placed on the ballot and um you know i think that'll work out pretty well i think that'll actually go our way but uh, just in case we're also kicking off our 
our write-in ballot, our uh, write-in campaign. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to be prepared for whatever happens. If, um, if, the case, or if the court case goes our way, then my name will just be on the ballot, period. Uh, if it doesn't, then we're still, we're already engaged in a writing campaign. So my team is working on uh, getting out the word on writing campaign and um, we're shifting gears. And, uh, you know, if uh, the court case goes our way, we'll be prepared for that too. It uh, looks like we've got uh, Jim finally on the line here. Let me bring bring him in. <laughs> there right. we go. All right. So just uh, who we have here is we have uh, Delegate Marshall Wilson and we have Delegate Jim Butler. Um, and they're both plaintiffs in the writ of mandamus that we filed against uh, Governor Justice. And, uh, you know, Marshall was just telling us about his his run for governor and the difficulties of gathering signatures. And uh, so Marshall, um, you needed 7,000. Well, I, we needed, because there was a lot of people I know working on, working on this, but we needed 7,200 verified signatures, which means just hard copy signatures and ad, you know, with the addresses of registered voters in West Virginia. And those had to be in what yesterday, or Sunday to the Secretary of State. Well, well, Monday by midnight, right? Okay. So, how how many signatures do you think, or did we find out you ended up with? Five thousand seven hundred and ten. So we fell a little bit short. Yeah, and here's but. here's the really fascinating part is that two thirds of those were gathered over the last couple of weeks. Well, three weeks. So two thirds of those were gathered over the last three weeks, which means. And we were gaining momentum, which means that if we actually had the other month that we should, by rights, have had, then, uh, you know, we would have far exceeded the required number. It would have been fine. But the fact that we were prevented, uh, our time was limited by the government edict that moved uh, the primary election, we lost a month of time that we could have been using to, uh, to uh, uh, collect signatures. Well, you know, if, if there had been a way to, for, uh, you know, people to just online um, have, you know, have uh, add, added their names to a petition, I mean, we would have had tens of thousands. Thank Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Now, um, you, you probably know, I think I told you this, but uh, I actually made three requests to the Secretary of State. The first was, can we please do this electronically? And that was denied. Uh, the second request that I made was, can we cut the number of required signatures in half? Because we weren't allowed to be in public, weren't allowed to, you know, to gather in public and do this. So that made it very hard to gather the signatures. As a matter of fact, not very hard, but it actually, uh, it actually created an infringement of my natural rights to run for office, of the voters' natural rights to choose their, their candidate, right? So... My first request, like I said, was, can we do this electronically since we obviously can't do this in person? We can't be closer than six feet from anyone. How are we supposed to say, here, please sign this? If, uh, you know, I have pretty short arms, relatively speaking. I, you know, I'm within six feet of a person when I offer them something to sign, and I think most other people are as well. And then uh, when I asked to have the number cut half because of the restrictions that were on us, that was denied. And my third request was to be allowed the month that we lost because the uh, primary was moved and that was denied. And that's when I decided to talk to the attorney. And uh, so my attorney, John Belinovich, uh, you know, 
the the other guy that I work with besides you. He is uh, he has sued he well he filed the suit yesterday with the federal court to uh, to give us ballot access. Well, good. I I hope that I hope that is uh, successful and and uh, yeah I know no John uh, we we all had lunch together one day there in Charleston. I've been to his office and he's he's uh, I mean it, it's great to have you know you know another lawyer to uh to take on some of these issues because it's it's uh, a lot of people don't want to touch them um and we have we we have delegate butler on here hey jim i i just want to ask marshall did did the secretary of state offer you the option of having ballots mailed to potential voters like like they did for the candidates in the primary no but we did that at our own expense um we of course, you know that we what we did was we set up a shared folder and, and had to access it, and they could print their own. A lot of West Virginians don't have printers in their house, though, so uh, right. you know, sent me an email or a note on Facebook. I would actually mail them at my expense uh, to the to the vote. Of course, then uh, you know, I mean, we we would also give them a self-addressed stamped envelope. So um, that's a that's a really good question, Jim. I hadn't really thought about that. Well, I mean, because the Secretary of State for the primary candidates, they actually sent a ballot at their at the state's expense, if I remember correctly. That's really interesting. Now, just so uh, in, in case you don't know, now Delegate Wilson there in the middle, he's a delegate representing uh, was it South Berkeley yeah. County, in the Eastern Panhandles? Right. Is that right? And now, Jim, you. Your uh, constituency is is uh, over the Point Pleasant area, uh, Mason County. Is that right? Yes, sir. southern part of Mason County and part of Putnam. Yeah, uh, yeah. My family was uh, were some of the earliest settlers there in Mason County. I don't know if I ever told you that. And I was able to find not last summer, but the summer before that, exactly where the farm, the cabin site was of my, my, uh, fourth and fifth great grandfather, paternal grandfather. It was, uh, James Bryan and Robert Bryan, his son. They lived there from the 1780s through uh, about 1840 when they went to Missouri, but we found the actual homestead site and it was on the North bank of the Canela river. Ex about exactly two and a half miles up the Kanawha from the point. And it's still a cornfield right now. And it, so it kind of looks just like it, it probably looked back then just real fertile farm ground. But, but, uh, I got, I got on the property here a while back and did flew my drone around and, uh, and I can't wait to go back, um, uh, at some point that I think that point pleasant, area in the history of the Battle of Point Pleasant is is just one of the jewels of West Virginia culture and history. And uh, it, you know, it's one of the, a lot of people think it was the first battle of the Revolutionary War. Now, it wasn't necessarily, a, I think it was more important than that, because it was a precursor to the American Revolution. And it right. was really the, the first time that there was an organized, Amer you know, purely American army, and that was, uh, you know, General Lewis's army, and they really impressed everybody by, uh, you know, the way that they performed. And that's 1774, 
And so, you know, very shortly after, you know, all that other stuff occurs in Boston and uh, the West Virginia's or Virginia's, uh, you know, involvement in some of that, the precursor time to the Rev War, you know, kind of gets lost in the mix of things. But, you know, I'd love to see the the Battle of Point Pleasant history of, of our state, you know, given a little more em emphasis, um, you know, moving forward. Anyways, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we've, what we've been talking about, but just, but um, I think Mason County is just a neat area, um, just culturally in our state and history wise. Well, because I think it, it has something to do with this because I think that, um, well, first of all, Congress did declare it to be the first battle of the Revolu revolution. Mm -hmm. So officially it, it is. And secondly, I think that people, they think that that big change has to happen somewhere else. They don't think that it's going to happen right where they live. And I think it's important to note that right here in West Virginia, Point Pleasant, West Virginia is where we, like you said, we first took the first organized sort of stance. So I do think it's important, but thanks for bringing that up. I'd like to see the, your old homestead. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we lost. I guess we lost Marshall there. Maybe he'll he'll come back on, and hopefully, I I can uh, I'll see it here. This is kind of the first time I've tried this, but but Beth Carter asked a question. Um, well, no, it was Hazel asked a question. How can I sign? Referring to Marshall's, uh, is there still time? No, unfortunately, you you cannot sign. Um, it was kind of a rush to to get the signatures that that were obtained. It wasn't easy. And unfortunately, there's not time to sign now. But as Marshall said, his he's litigating this issue. Maybe he can still get on the ballot that way. If not, he can still we can still write him in. Um, here he is. Oh, hopefully there he goes. Okay, we got you back, uh, Marshall. Um, what about uh, somebody? Cheryl asked, "What about Trump's EO?" Cheryl, I, I I assume you're referring to the the statement that Trump made about um, evictions. I I don't know. I haven't been watching the news this morning. I've been working, unfortunately, so I, I I wasn't aware that there actually was an executive order. But you know, the issue over whether any executive can stop evictions in a state, I think I think that's got to be unconstitutional. The that issue was litigated in Kentucky. Um, with attorney Chris Wiest, and I believe they're still litigating it because while, you know, it, it, it is a, maybe a popular move to, to stop evictions, you know, there you have government kind of taking sides, you know, picking winners and losers, um, because while you might be protecting somebody who is, a, a, is vulnerable, maybe, you know, I've been trying to keep a 97-year-old lady in her house here in Monroe County. You know, keeping the the foreclosures away, and I had to go to bankruptcy court, and still here today, I'm trying to keep this this lady in her house, and I have a soft spot for old ladies, so I I don't care, you know, I want to keep them in their house regardless of what I can do, but uh, you know, that's my choice as a private lawyer. When you have the government saying that all evictions must stop, you also might be hurting an old lady somewhere because there might be a, someone like my grandmother who's uh, who who has uh, rental properties, and that's her stream of income in her retirement. And so you're you're choosing, you know, maybe uh, choosing against her. You know, so I don't think we have that in West Virginia 
Um, but we did have a moratorium on evictions from the Supreme Court for a period of time. But uh, I, I haven't seen what Trump's done. But if he does try to do an executive order against evictions that would apply in West Virginia, I don't see how that would be constitutional. But I guess that's for another another video. What, what do you think, Jim? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I don't I can't uh, quote the, the West Virginia Constitution, but we do have a in the West Virginia Constitution against uh, taking of private property. And really, when you're taking someone's income from, like you say, a rental property, then that that's, in a sense, taking taking something that belongs to them, which is the, the rental money that they're entitled to. And isn't that exactly what Governor Justice is, had, has, had done with his closing allegedly non-essential businesses? And you're right, the, the Constitution, I probably could quote it. I, I've got it on my stack of stuff here on the desk, but it does say that the, there's not to be any taking of private property without the person being reimbursed. So is, you know, less Jenkins, the outlaw barber, up in Martinsburg, um, is he going to be reimbursed for being uh, ordered to close or for being arrested for not closing? Um, is uh, Are all the restaurants that were ordered closed for a period of time, um, some never to open again, are they going to be reimbursed and by whom? Uh, so as some lawyers had told me at some bigger firms, they, they're preparing for an just an entire career full of litigation that's going to come out of of uh, all this COVID nineteen stuff, especially the government interference with with businesses. So I, I mean, I think a, a lot of that remains to be seen. And so, going back to Trump's Trump's actions, probably from a political campaign standpoint, that's probably an issue that his focus grouped well. And they know that voters like, um, you know, a, a politician standing up, you know, stopping evictions. But, you know, as as I say, freedom, freedom is scary. Right. So we we have to in order to have freedom, we have to allow the process to take out, you know, the process to go as it should go. So I, I don't necessarily agree either with with stopping any evictions now. That brings up a whole nother issue because I still haven't even been in a circuit court anywhere in the state um, since all this started. You know, the, we've had all hearings, like kind of like we're talking now, just Skype hearings. I actually had one case I was involved with where my client ended up going to prison for a year, and all he got was a Skype hearing, just like this. And there was one witness that testified, the primary witness was testifying via telephone. And it was about like uh, Marshall Wilson's connection he's had here today. He's, you know, she cuts out and then she's back in. And then, and then I'm, I'm trying to cross examine her and she's in and out, in and out. I can't even see her face. So it's not like in a real court. And I'm looking at her eyes. Uh, I'm able to stand there. Um, you know, I'm able to talk to my client. My client can whisper questions to me. And, and instead, my client's in jail looking at a TV screen. I'm sitting here in this chair looking at a TV screen. The judge is somewhere else looking at a TV screen. Prosecutor is somewhere else and may not even have a video connection. And, and out of that, 
this man ends up going to prison for a year. Now, it wasn't a trial. It was just a revocation of, of uh, probation type of deal. But I'm sure that's happening all over the state. So a, a Skype hearing like this might be nice where evidence doesn't need to be pre presented or uh, witnesses don't need to be questioned. But how can you how can you present evidence or attack evidence over a computer screen? I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd. I mean, you can't. And and what does that have to do with the Constitution? Well, the state Constitution says that access to the courts will never be closed. People will always have access to the courts, even in time of war. Well, the, the courts have been closed for four and a half months now. Now, we can get a Skype hearing on something, but is is that really access to the courts? The, the misdemeanor courts, the magistrate courts, actually have been the only courts that, that I've been to in person. And to their credit, they've been operating, you know, and I've, I've, I've criticized the magistrate court system before because we have magistrate judges who most times haven't been to law school. They're, they're not lawyers like you'd have in other states um, or in the circuit courts. But you know what? They've been they've been there trying cases. They've been working. I was just in one this morning. And the only case I've tried so far during this uh, this um, apocalypse has been down in McDowell County, and uh, that's that's the only trial I've, I've been able to get on on anything. So right now the courts have been closed, and the and the Supreme Court in closing the courts has cited the governor's executive order. So here we have the judicial branch that's supposed to be overseeing the actions of the executive branch, and they're they're using his actions to cl to close down their branch as well. Yeah, but, you know, I, I guess that's for that's for a different lawsuit if someone wants to make that case, and I'm sure there there will be a lot of criminal defendants who will make that case. You know, I didn't get due process in my my criminal conviction. I, can you convict somebody and send them to jail? Over, over Skype, I, I don't see how that will end up standing up in court, but um, it just illustrates that we're going to have years worth of legal issues to come out of all this COVID-19. Uh, let's see. Jim, I looked at the, the uh, current numbers from, from the COVID-19 dashboard today. Mm -hmm. And I'll I'll put a, a couple up on the screen here. Let's see. This is yeah. I don't know if I can read that one. So they like to say that there is six what six thousand nine hundred and two confirmed cases. But if you look down here right. at the bottom, current active cases, there's there's only one thousand eight hundred and sixty four. So almost everybody who's gotten it in West Virginia has already recovered from. It. So out of out of 1.8 million people, we're we're still under a state of emergency. Out of 1.8 million people, there's only what less than 2,000 people who who have this virus. Right. Uh, the whole point of closing everything down was supposed to be temporary to quote flatten the curve. Um, but you can see here. You know that they will list the uh, the daily cases, and then 
and they uh, they list the daily uh, hospitalizations. As of right now, there's there's only 111 people that are hospitalized in the entire state for coronavirus. Um, 40 of those are ICU cases, and 14 are are uh, on the vent. As as far as the the trend. The, the, the top one shows the recovered cases or the active cases. No, I'm sorry. The, uh, the active cases is the dark blue line. And it's actually relatively flat. I mean, look at that, relatively flat. So the numbers keep rising if you look at the, at the recovered cases. The, the numbers keep rising and rising and rising. But the active cases are actually, you know, relatively flat. Right. And, if you look at the daily percent of positive cases, look, it's actually down right now. So nevertheless, you know, we're still in every single county in a state of emergency. And, you know, Jim, when I, when I, when I was first contacted by you guys, I, I was kind of surprised that you guys hadn't been contacted by the governor whatsoever or consulted or, or, or had any involvement in, in uh, responding to COVID-19. Well, that's right. And and I think one of the things that's a little ironic about this whole thing is there's a good chance that if we were called in the special session, we would look at the data and listen to testimony of experts and maybe even the governor himself. And we might agree 100 percent with the decisions he's made. And it, we may agree with the way he's planning on spending this money, which, again, according to the Constitution, the legislature as the power of the purse, we've all heard that statement. So we might agree with everything he's doing, but the fact is we are not performing our constitutional duty and he is preventing us from performing our constitutional duty by not calling us into session and, and actually by us not calling ourselves in, which kind of gets into another thing. It takes three-fifths majority of the House and the Senate to call ourselves in. As I understand it, we have enough members of the House who want to call ourselves in, but not enough in the Senate. But, um, yeah, whether the governor's making good decisions or not here, we're not doing our duty and the governor's not allowing us to do our duty, which, which also prevents our constituents from having the ability to speak with me and say, hey, Jim, what's going on with this or that? I don't really know because I'm not getting firsthand information. I only hear what I hear on, on the news, just like just about everyone else. Have you been contacted by a lot of constituents asking, you know, questions related to you know, why is, you know, why is my business being closed uh, or trying to blame you for it? Not a whole lot, but a few. And and that's something that's kind of interesting. I've been in the House of Delegates for eight years. And even when we have the most controversial types of issues, you know, related to taxation or toll roads or or even the teacher strikes and that type of thing, there are very few people who actually will reach out and contact a legislator. And I think this is true um, of anyone I've spoken with, all of my colleagues in the House and, and at the na national level as well. For, for whatever reason, people just don't contact their representatives. So when you do get one or two calls, that represents a pretty big, a pretty sizable amount of people. So uh, I've had a few calls, but not a large amount. Why do you think the the House of Delegates is on board with, with uh, getting involved here and the Senate is not? 
I think it's largely because the house districts are much smaller. There are, for people who don't know or maybe watching here, there are 100 members of the house. Each, each of us represents 18,000 roughly constituents. So I see a lot of my constituents when I'm out working every day, when I go to the grocery store, they know me personally where senators, there are only 34 senators, so their districts are much bigger they're not as likely to run into people that they know on a daily basis, I think. So the, the House of Delegates was set up to be closest to the people and we certainly are closest to the people and uh, they're more familiar with us. So I think they contact us more. We feel the pressure more. Do you think that if, uh, when the legislature gets back to session that it would be a good idea to take up this emergency powers statute and put some additional or put some restrictions in it to in case this happens again in order to to uh, yeah, restrain any future governor from running away with the legislature's power um, by declaring a state of emergency. I absolutely th I absolutely think that needs to be done. And as I understand it, even the legislators who are not wanting to call ourselves in right now are planning on do doing that next session. Now, uh, I won't be there this this next session because I ran for the state Senate and was not successful in my in my primary race. So I won't be there. But um, the fact that the Constitution says that the legislature, for example, has control of the money and the, and the right to make laws, to pass laws, is it even constitutional for the legislature to give our duty to someone else? I mean, we're saying, you know, the Constitution says we have to have oversight of the spending of money, for, for instance. Can we give that to the Supreme Court or wait, can we give that to some someone else? I don't think we can. I think it's our responsibility. There is actually a West Virginia Supreme Court case on on uh, you know violation of separation of powers where the legislature had tried to give, and we had cited this in the in our brief, but the legislature had tried to give the executive, the board of pharmacy the ability to create new misdemeanors. And mm -hmm. it was it went to the Supreme Court on a legal challenge and the Supreme Court held that it's unconstitutional for the legislature to try to to delegate their power to the executive. So it's it's clearly the 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 legal precedent that even if the legislature wants to they cannot give their power to the governor. So so it, you know, it, it's not just what does the statute say or what does it not say, but it, it, it's regardless of what anyone does, we have a separation of powers. Only the legislature can enact laws and, it only, and the governor can enforce them. So, so yeah, we, the, the, our Supreme Court has looked at that exact issue and said that, you know, I don't know why a legislature would want to do that, but even if they did, they can't do it. It looks like right. we got Marshall back here, and you know, that's sorry. Right. Oh, that's all right. Um, I saw, I saw somewhere I think yesterday that you know there was there was some allegations online that hydroxychloroquine was not available to certain patients 
and uh, in West Virginia, or it was available to Medicaid patients, but it wasn't available to private insurance. I, and I, I looked into it a little bit, and it looks like the West Virginia, speaking of the Board of, of Pharmacy, it looks like they passed the regulation that that uh, says uh, that, that all the pharmacies in West Virginia, you have to now be more restrictive in, in uh, giving anybody and filling any prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine. And uh, I think that that is a regulation that does exist now in West Virginia. And it, it was done purely by the executive branch, purely by the, the board of pharmacy. So, I mean, I don't know, is that something that any, any of you guys have, have looked at? No, uh, normally, normally these, these uh, regulations that are promulgated by the various executive department, they, uh, you know, at least the legislature has to look at them and vote on, on whether or not they're approved. And the reason for that is because, yeah, the reason for that is because according to our constitution, um, you know, consumer governed is required for any law to go into effect, which is why we have a legislature. If the legislature hasn't reviewed it and approved of it, then those regulations are supposed to not have the force of law. And apparently they do have the force of law. We've got businesses being shut down, um, you know, using supposedly the force of law, but it's just a health department regulation. It's not even a valid health department regulation. It's just a something that Jim Justice told the health department to do. So they're effectively functioning as his, uh, you know, his personal enforcers. They're they're not working for the people of this state at all. You know, I've talked to well, some of right. these. Even even. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. I just I think there's an important thing here. Even when they pass rules that don't have a great effect on people, we have a rule review committee, and we have to approve any rules that they come up with before they have effective law per se. So that's another procedure that we've totally skipped during this whole process. So the people have no input on this at all. So where is right. the consent of the governed? In other words, this is unconstitutional and illegal because the consent of the government is not even sought out. You know, I've talked to some of these small business owners who, and they've and they've been approached by the the local health department, and they've been told that they have to comply with X, Y, and Z. And so when they ask, well is there something in writing that you can give me to, to show me that that is what, what I'm complied to do, that that's what the law is. The, they won't put anything in writing. All they refer the restaurant owners to is a link to the governor's governor's uh, website where, where he puts his restaurant rules. It's right. like, wait, and his restaurant rules at this point, because the consent of the governor has not been sought are literally dictates, which makes him a, dictator well it looks like if you know when we refile this this challenge this legal challenge to the governor's executive orders we we have some private businesses who who want to be on board this go around so we'll have all the bases um, covered i think we're going to have a, a restaurant up in putnam county that was told that they had to comply with the face mask requirement 
even where it wasn't even where it wasn't necessary according to the CDC because that's what Jim Justice said to do or else they would be closed by that Friday. And in that particular case, that health department actually went to the TV news and made statements against this particular restaurant and harmed them and the, and the public, you know, in, in, on social media, which had a, uh, a, you know, a real life effect on, on this, on this family that owned this restaurant. And of course we have the outlaw barber up there in the Eastern panhandle um, who was arrested as a result of 72 of, year old veteran farmer just cutting hair. And, he asked and for that, a written order. He asked for a written order because he couldn't get the uh, the special magical uh, COVID nineteen benefits unless because he owns his own business instead of being an employee, and because he couldn't get a written order, he couldn't get any of the benefits that that you know supposedly come out of having your business shut down by the COVID nineteen mandates. And uh, he requested a written mandate, and the lady from the barber's board said she was going to get that letter for him. And she came back instead with a sheriff's deputy who arrested this 72 year old man for cutting hair. Yeah, and still, always free. And still prosecuting him. Yes. Still, still prosecuting. Prosecution. And you know, so I, I'm, today or yesterday, somebody had told me, you know, the, the DMVs are all closed. So you can't go renew your driver's license. And now I've heard what's happening is people are being denied the ability to to buy firearms from you know a firearms dealer because if they have an expired driver's license or expired ID, they're not going to be able to to pass you know the you know fill out the forms um, and show a valid ID in order to buy a new gun. And now they can't go get their driver's licenses renewed because the DMVs are closed. Now the employees are in there; they're getting paid. But the door's locked and you can't get in, which, of course, you guys know all this. But at, at what point or, you know, at what point are, are we going to enter phase one of of downsizing the government? If, well, if, Don, if let's, let, let, let's discuss real quick the, the uh, scenario you just laid out. So you are required by law to have a driver's license, right? There are certain right. functions you can't do besides driving that you can't really do unless you have a a driver's license or a, a state issued ID, which you can only get from the DMV, right? Right. But they're not open. So you have a requirement placed on you by the state to do these certain things, but you cannot do it because the state will not provide the service that is required to allow you to do the thing that's required of you. And on top of that, you're still paying for it. And on top of it, you have no representative, no representation through the legislature. You're being taxed. You're being taxed without representation. And you're being required to do something the government has made completely impossible to do. That's the situation you're in. Right. Well, uh, here's this here's this little Photoshop I did the other day, and uh, you know the, that's our governor, and you know it, it's very fitting, and and not just because it looks right. Um, you know, it looks like his face would fit there, but well, the history of that original image is important. But, you know, it was King Henry VIII, right. King of England, of course, who he, he he did many power grabs. But he, you know, they had a parliament ever since the Magna Carta. But he basically entered, it was a proclamation of, of 16-whatever. And uh, I'd put it on my Facebook page. Uh, but he had grabbed power away from parliament. 
and it ended very poorly because the people were pissed. Parliament was pissed. People ended up executed. The English people entered a civil war eventually. And uh, Parliament was able to eventually grab power back. But even the King of England, it, it took a King Henry VIII type of guy to try to completely go dictator. Now, he was already king, but he wasn't really a dictator because the people still had representation in Parliament. But he took that away from them, and they, they didn't even put up with that. Um, and here, we have really worse than King Henry VIII because we don't even have a parliament that, that that's in existence at this point, at least not until February. Uh, so, and, I mean, it really is. It and who does knows fit. about that, John, if we still have a requirement that we can't meet in groups of more than 10? Right. Are we going to have a parliament? Are we going to have a legislature? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, you understand that between regular sessions, the regularly scheduled 60-day sessions, we, we as a standard, we have interim sessions. What is it, Jim? Every three months or so, we'll have a three- or four-day meeting where we receive reports and discuss things. And yes. the people are still represented at that point. But we haven't had any of those. We've not been allowed to hold even our interim sessions because we can't meet in groups of more than 10. Your, your legislature... It's not just as, as a lot of people I've spoken to think that, you know, we're between sessions. It's not just that. It's that our regular function has been shut down. We are not allowed to do our job. We're not allowed to represent you by the edicts of the chief executive. Um, Marshall, we had a, a comment here from Facebook from Michelle who says that my friend couldn't sign the petition because of inability to access the DMV to update her voter registration and driver's license to West Virginia. Her first available appointment was October. Wow. Well, that, that was I am sorry to hear that, Michelle. Yeah, I mean, that, that was convenient, wasn't it? Well, I, look, man, I know this isn't about me campaigning, but I swear to you, I will take a bullet to the face to uphold and defend your individual natural rights if you give me the chance to do it. Well, I, this has got to end. Well, so, I mean, where we are as far as your campaign, I mean, there's still some hope to get you on the ballot through this federal lawsuit that John filed. Absolutely. But, but the thing is, we are continuing. We're going to take a worst case scenario, build our plans off of that. We're going to prepare for the worst and hope for the best, which means... We're executing a write-in campaign. We're going at it hard. We started this morning, shifted uh, uh, shifted our efforts from gathering signatures to executing a write-in campaign. And hopefully uh, this court case will go the way we need it to and we'll actually just end up on the ballot. All right. So worst case scenario, people can still vote for you. They just have to choose the write-in portion, uh, write-in option and write your name in. Yes, sir. I will not now, do it quietly. Are there any technicalities with that? Like, does it have to be S dot Marshall space or uh, Wilson? I mean, does it have to be exactly written in any any way? Or can it just say Marshall Wilson or Delegate Wilson? I mean, are there any rules that you, you're aware of? Yes, sir. It's uh, on the form. It's going to say S dot space Marshall with two L's space Wilson with one L. And it really needs to be written that way. Okay, so if it comes down to people having to write you in, that's what they would need to write. Just S yes, dot Marshall with Marshall with two L's, Wilson. Yes, sir, with one L. Right. One L. Well, 
Nell <laughs> and Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so, what can people do in the meantime? I know that you know. I think this has been an amazing grassroots effort, and I am a political science scientist. Technically, I do have a degree in political science. One of the first things that you know they they teach you is turnout sucks. Turnout's always bad. And that's been always the thing about the younger generation is that they'd always taught in the political science courses is that, yeah, the younger voters, they're always left leaning. They're always kind of radical, radical leaning, but they never vote. You know, they never vote in any in any uh, numbers. Now, that that's always been changing since I I got my political science degree. And that was right in the middle of all the the Bush Gore stuff. And that's really, in my opinion, that's when politics really changed. You know, there was a lot of people, especially college students and people my age, you didn't know if they were a Democrat or Republican or independent or what. I mean, it's not really something you 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 discuss necessarily. It wasn't really a, a common topic with younger people. And then you had the the 2000 election and and everything was different from that point on. You had us versus them. Right. And uh, it, it's it's just been really, really, uh, you know, aggressive um, environment and politics since then. But I think still the numbers always have shown that the younger generation, they still don't vote in any large number. And so you, they're very loud. You hear from them. Um, especially now that we have social media, but they, they've never really voted. Um, so I mean, I mean, we'll see if that if that's all changing, you know, given the current environment that we're in. But I think it's amazing. Getting back to my point here, that this was a real grassroots effort, you know, very much like the Tea Party. Now, the the Tea Party, they didn't have COVID nineteen and and uh, you know stay-at-home orders to deal with or, or mask mask orders to deal with. I mean, that was an environment where everybody could get together. There were no restrictions. But here, in, in, in an environment where people are wearing masks and afraid to see or talk to other human beings, you were still able to get this network of just regular people, not political operatives, all the way across the state, just regular folks that were running out and trying to get petitions signed. And that's not easy to do. It's not easy to get, I mean, West Virginians, I think, were naturally, I mean, I'm not from West Virginia originally, but it's my adopted state. And uh, I consider myself a West Virginian now, and, and I have two kids that were born here. So I think we value our our independence, our privacy, and I don't think we're the type that you're, you're going to go knock on our door and shove a petition in our face and, and we're going to sign it. And I think people probably kind of look at you like, like, uh, yeah, I'm not signing a damn thing. So, so uh, I think the fact that you got as many signatures as, as you did and so many volunteers involved. In you know, such I, a short time as we did. Yeah. And, 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 and a I time wanna, John, I want to be really clear about this because it sounds like you're almost about to compliment me and say I did a great job. It's not me. It's not me. I'm, I'm irascible. I'm hard to get along with. I'm not very nice. You know, it's the message. It's it's the fact that mountaineers want to be free. It's the fact that there's just a guy. I'm not even necessarily doing a good job of presenting the message, but the message is compelling. The message is the only valid reason for any government to exist is to uphold and defend your individual natural rights. That the entire purpose 
of our government is to ensure that each of us has every opportunity to exercise our rights and, and to enjoy the liberties that come from that free exercise of those rights. That's it. And once that message is presented, people jump on board and they go, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I might not have said it that way, but but that is a fact. I know it to be true. And uh, I also know that these other two guys who are running for the office don't know that it's true. And they believe that they should be in charge. And, uh, you know, once once we can get the message out there, it's not really hard to get people to sign on. Uh, it's just getting to the point where we can actually tell them what the message is. Well, I think that you you are such a better candidate than 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 Jim Justice. I mean, Jim Justice to me is it because he's a great candidate and people support him because they like his policies, they like the way he he uh, he uh, defends the Constitution, or they like anything about him, or is it the fact that he's the richest guy in the state? He's the only billionaire that we have. Well, I mean, it's it's a combination of that and the fact that he is the Republican nominee. I talk to people all the time. They say, man, I love what you're saying, but you'll never get elected because you're an independent. And I say, well, why want to get elected? Because, I, because I'm an independent. And I say, well, nobody votes for independents. And I say, why doesn't anybody vote for independents? And they say, well, because independents don't get elected. Okay, so I'm not going to vote for you because you won't get elected because I won't vote for you because you won't get elected because I won't vote for you. And, uh, you know, they say, man, you, you are the guy we want in the governor's mansion. But if we vote for you, we're going to end up with that other guy in the governor's mansion instead of our guy who we despise and don't trust and don't have any respect for. We'll get the other guy, the other guys, the other team guy who we despise and don't have any respect for. That's, that's well, the yeah, argument. It's, it's just like it's just like Joe Biden for the Democrats. I mean, name one person that actually supports Joe Biden rather than they're just against Donald Trump. I really haven't seen one. You know, no, nobody in in their right mind actually looks at that guy and says, "You know what? He'd make a great president. I really think he'd be a, a good leader." No, it's it's all it's all either just the party forward or anti-Trump. And it's sort of the same way in my opinion with Jim Justice. Now, who actually supports you know, any of his policies on, on anything. It's just that he is the nominee. And right. I'm sure that him being the nominee has nothing to do with the, the fact that he also is the richest guy in the state. Right. And it, isn't that kind of shameful for, for West Virginia politics? You know, wouldn't it be nice to say, you know what, it's not about the money, it's about the ideas. But here in reality, we've got somebody in charge who has really no ideas that conservative uh, West Virginians like, but he just, he has a lot of money. Right. Um, and it is my sincerest desire to, to walk into that position that has immediate access to the levers of power so that I can dismantle those levers of power and hand them back to the people of this state. That is my literal desire. And the reason for that is, you know, every time I speak to people, they're like, okay, sure. You say that, but why would you want that? I mean, once you've got the levers of power in your hand, why would you want to give them away? And I can answer that question. The answer is because I have nine children and I want my children to live and to raise their children in a free, just, prosperous and secure land. And the only way that will ever happen is if we, the people, if we, the people are in charge here, not some small cabal of, of politicians. And, and if the people of this state will allow me the opportunity 
I will ensure that that happens, not for the people of this state, because I'm not going to make you promises like that because they're insincere and not for, uh, you know, any great high ideals, but because I love my kids. That's why. That is my motivation here. Well, I love you know, kids. I want them to live in a free, just, prosperous and secure land. You know, West Virginia is, is, I mean, it's one of the reddest of the red states, and I'm, I'm just meaning ideologically. Um, you know, of course, all of the original South was Democrat, you know, the Southern Democrat. And um, w as, as has usually been the case, there's been a lag, and West Virginia was one of the last states to transfer from being a, a Democrat-controlled state to a Republican-controlled state, um, uh, one of the last Southern states. But the, the voter base of people, you couldn't find a, a better uh, group of patriotic, freedom-loving, conservative people. And they may not even care about politics or quite understand why Jim Justice was a Democrat and, and now a Republican. But they understand the idea of freedom and liberty. And I think that's something that was it's been a part of, of being in the mountains. And, 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 and we saw that in the civil war when, when we had to create an entirely different state because there was such independent thought and, and, and critical thinking um, as you got across the Allegheny barrier of mountains. And that's, you know, I think it's still today that anything can happen in West Virginia. And I think if they just get exposure to you as a candidate and they see that, that on the other hand, we have, you know, the, the, the deadbeat billionaire as Forbes called them, but with you, they could have a 21 year combat veteran, uh, father to, to nine kids whose kids absolutely adore him. And I wish I could get my kids to, well, most to of them do most of the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I wish I could get my kids to, to, to like me as much as kids like you. And who who is I mean been a missionary in in the jungles of Peru, and who can stand up off the cuff and and uh, articulate why he believes what he believes, and articulate the principles of freedom and and uh, and uh, the basis for our constitution. I mean, I think you could take off as a candidate, but all you need is exposure, and if. If it can happen anywhere, it can happen in West Virginia. And I was just looking this morning, I think, was it Lisa Murkowski? I think she won an election one year to the U.S. Senate as a write-in candidate. Right. You know, in a, in, a, in a small state such as West Virginia, especially now that everybody's been subjected to the stay-at-home orders and all that, I think the, the time is right for something big to happen. And... And we need a leader that that can lead us. I mean, we need somebody like South Dakota had. This was yeah. such a missed opportunity for a conservative uh, constitutional candidate to to say, you know what, we don't have to do what the governors of New York and Kentucky and New Jersey are doing. You know, we can follow the option of freedom. And and if justice had just said. Well, if the legislature wants to to discuss and implement some new restrictions, then th then they can do so. And uh, I mean, it could have been such a great opportunity, but instead he's he went completely off the rails, and he's continuing to go completely off the rails now, threatening this travel this travel ban. And right. 
you know, I think what people need to understand is, is it's not just the, it's not about the inconvenience of wearing a mask. It's not about the inconvenience of, of having to, to stay home for a few weeks or a few months. It's, it's the broader picture and the slippery slope of, of constitutional rights. Because if we allow Big Jim to do it, then we allow the socialist candidate to do it if he gets elected. So this is critical. This is an absolutely critical idea here. We not only need to reverse Big Jim's unconstitutional, dictatorial, tyrannical mandates, but we need to do it in such a way that no future government will even dream that he should try it. We need to do it in such a way, such a punitive way, that in the future, whoever happens to be in that office will think, hey, I should do something tyrannical in West Virginia. And then all of a sudden go, oh, wait, <laughs> that's a really bad idea in West Virginia. I'm never going to do anything like that. Well, that's what needs to happen here. And well, more importantly, we need to dismantle that power structure so that it can't happen again, no matter who we put in that office. You know, I always like to look back at history as as a guiding as a guiding light for for what we should do in the future. And half of our history is as of Virginia. You know, we are part of Virginia. Virginia's history pre-1863 is our history as well. So we do have a precedent of having a tyrannical governor. In fact, um, you know, Jim and I were talking about the Battle of Point Pleasant earlier. Right. And the the official war that, that that falls under is called Lord Dunmore's War. And Lord Dunmore was the governor of Virginia. He was um, appointed the governor of Virginia by the King of England. So he was our, he was our governor as it, when we were a colony. And, and, uh, but he was looking after primarily his own interest and the crown's interest rather than, rather than uh, you know, Virginia's interest as, as a colony that maybe wants to be a free, a free state one day. In any event, he, he, Shortly after the Battle of Point Pleasant, and I think sometime in 1775, as events were heating up in, in Massachusetts with the Sons of Liberty and in North Carolina um, and in Virginia, he tyrannically basically passed an executive order type of deal uh, banning uh, guns, an early gun control law here in Virginia to try to try to take the arms and ammunition away from the Virginia citizens in anticipation that there, there may be a revolution. And what was our response to that tyrannical action as uh, you know, taken by the governor of Virginia? Well, we marched an army on our state capital, which was Williamsburg. And, and I think part of it was led by Patrick Henry who of course was the, the uh, famous lawyer who had said, give me liberty or, or give me death. And he was willing to put his money where his mouth was. And he marched with an army uh, of men on Williamsburg and Lord Dunmore fled onto his ship. And see, he, he had also freed, you know, he had also issued an emancipation proclamation um, all on his own, freeing um, any number of slaves. And he took these slaves into Williamsburg. But when the armed, uh, when the army came marching for him, he could only fit a few of them on his ship. So he, he, he saved himself and his staff and, and a couple of, of the slaves that he, that he had freed. And he just left the rest of them behind for, you know, to, uh, 
for the Army to find. But that's what that's what we as Virginia citizens did in the past when we had a tyrannical governor. And so, you know, all of this uh, don't tread on me stuff, the, you know, the Gaston flag, you know, all of that stuff comes from Virginia. I mean, they may have had the the Sons of Liberty and and uh, uh, what was the guy's name in uh, Boston? Hancock. But we had Patrick Henry. We had Thomas Jefferson. I mean, the, Virginia played a very important part. And I think the U.S. Bill of Rights was, was modeled on, on the Virginia Bill of Rights. So, um, you know, we're running out of time here. But, um, uh, oh, I know, I know. One last thing. You know, Jim, we had talked earlier about where in the West Virginia Constitution um, – does it mention what? Well, I would encourage everyone to actually read the West Virginia Constitution. It's not long, and it's very, very well written. And, uh, you know, Article 1, Section 3 states that the provisions of the Constitution of the United States and of this state are operative alike in a period of war as in a time of peace, and any departure therefrom or violation thereof under the plea of necessity or any other plea is sub subversive of good government, and this tends to anarchy and despotism. So uh, the West Virginia Constitution has provided that the, the people will never be deprived of their constitutional rights, even in a time of war or any other uh, alleged necessity. So right. I'm sorry. Go, I go disagree ahead, with you. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's it's or, as far as where in the in the Constitution does it state that um, the separation of powers is required? That is Article Five, Section One, and it states that the legislative, executive, and judicial departments shall be separate and distinct, so that neither shall exercise the powers properly belonging to the others, nor shall any person exercise the powers of more than one of them at the same time, except. Right that justices of the peace shall be eligible to the legislature. So, right. so, I mean, I'll read that again. Nor shall any person exercise the powers of more than one of them at the same time. And isn't that exactly the, the state government that we're living in right now? Yes. Where we don't even know who is running the government. You know, we have a COVID czar, we, right, we have a COVID czar who is the head medical guy at a left-wing university. Is he the one who's making all of our restrictions, closing our businesses? We don't know. And this is something that legislators should should be debating. I mean, wh why why be a legislator, Marshall, if you don't get to have any part in, quote, the event of our lifetimes? It's well, I mean, it's not about me getting a part in it. I know I know what you're getting at, John. It's not about me. It's about the people I represent not having a voice. Section 2-2 of the uh, West Virginia State Constitution says powers of government in citizens. The powers of government reside in all the citizens of the state and can be rightfully exercised only in accordance with their will and appointment. I'm not even saying that mandatory mask and business closures are not the will of the people of the state. 
All I'm saying is we don't know what the will of the people is because their elected representatives are not allowed to speak. That's it. How, how do we know that the powers of government, which reside only in the citizens, are being rightfully exercised if we don't know what the will of the people is because the legislature is not allowed to meet? Right. Well, unfortunately, I, I have to get back to work here. Um, before before we cut off, uh, I know, Jim, We I think uh, Marshall and I probably jibber-jabbered uh, you know, a little much and... Uh, you know, hog the time. Is there any, anything else you want to want to say as parting words? Well, I guess, and my wife just mentioned this to me. I think it's very disappointing that, that ordinary people like myself and Marshall, and I know you're a constitutional attorney, but ordinary people can read the U S constitution and the West Virginia constitution. And, and both of those were written in plain English so that ordinary people can read them and understand them. And we can see that the governor is overstepping his bounds here. And, and it really confounds me. And I think a lot of, a lot of citizens that the Supreme court can look at the same language that we're looking at in plain language and read something totally different and allow the governor to continue with this. So don't know if you want to, you know, comment on that, but, uh, as a, as a constitutional attorney, you have a lot more insight than I do, but it just, it's just hard to understand. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, 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 it has to say what it says, you know, just like the second amendment says, you know, shall not, you know, Congress shall not, um, you know, it, it has to say that and lawyers for 250 years now have, have been taking the words of the constitution and construing them into meaning all sorts of things pertaining to abortions and first trimesters and second trimesters, rights of privacy, things that aren't, aren't in there at all. And then they'll take things that are in there, such as requirement for probable cause and a warrant, and they'll take those and, and throw them out the back door and pretend that they're not there or that they don't apply to the states, but they apply to the federal government or vice versa. So at some point, I think we, we just need to read the words as they're written. And, you know, when you buy... If you've ever bought anything from from uh, Larue, the the gun company, uh, is a great uh, manufacturer of scope mounts, and and uh, they make uh, AR-15 style rifles, all sorts of stuff. But when you buy something from them, you get a you get a bunch of swag in the mail. You get you get some barbecue seasoning. You get a hat. You get a thing they call a, a Jillo that is is a beer cap a beer bottle opener but you also get a pocket copy of the constitution. And I still have one of those that I keep around. And you know what? It's probably a really good idea to, to, you know, since we're going to continue this grassroots effort and, and uh, Marshall, I know you're going to be all over the state still. Why not? Let's get a bunch of pocket constitutions of the, of the, of the federal constitution. And, and why not get some made for our state constitution? Because you know what? It's written even better than the federal one. And uh, it, I mean, it says what it says. And if you look at the, the only case really I'm aware of, of a Supreme court throwing out all of their governor's executive orders in response to, to COVID-19, that was Wisconsin. And if you read the decision in Wisconsin, that's exactly what they based it on. You know, the, the, if people are really free, then they have a representative form of government. 
So that means that they're, they're legislate. We follow the rules of legislature making laws or we don't follow the rules. And that's, you know, our constitution is a lot like Wisconsin's and it has all that language of, of the people of West Virginia are free. And right now, you know, we couldn't be any less free. And it really is. A lot of people are mad. I know a lot of people are mad. And they're, they're, I think there is a silent majority of people who are fed up. And you know what? As I go out on the streets, especially in, in, in this rural area where I live, there's nobody. There's nobody acting like it's the end of the world. Uh, they're just not. You know what? If, if we really had a pandemic and people were dropping dead like flies, people would wear a damn mask. Because they don't want to die, but here, you know, no nobody knows anybody that 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 that's even had it hardly. And you know, everyone knows somebody who's had a hard time with the flu or and cancer, heart disease, heart attack, stroke, lots of things. I mean, there've been people dying left and right as as they always do, of terrible things. And you know, we never upended our culture and changed our culture. Um, or closed our economy in response to any other danger. But now we've done so in response to something that doesn't even make the top 10, ten list of deaths in our state. Anyways, I've got to run, but I, I appreciate you both of you guys uh, doing this with me and, and we'll have to do it again soon. And uh, Marshall, I, I, I want to thank you for everything that you've done. I know that you and your family have worked very hard to, to, uh, to you know, get all these signatures signed and get on the ballot. And I do know what that's like. I was involved with a political campaign with my father for, for uh, Senate when I was in college. And it was out of that, he used to make me go stand on the corner with a sign and wave at traffic. And it was so humiliating. <laughs> it, it was so humiliating. Pe people used to flick me off. And even my friends, they'd see me just to joke around. They, they'd honk their horn and flick you off. And you just had to kind of smile and wave. And I hated every second of it. So I, I, I can't believe you, you're, you've done such a good job with your kids that they actually appear to enjoy the process. So I, I, I know that I will never run for public office because I saw, you know, I, I saw how difficult it is. I, I remember seeing TV commercials of my father uh, with his head on a marionette. And they're, you know, they're, they've got like the, the trial lawyers association dancing because he was a doctor and they're, they're dancing the, or the doctors dancing the marin, marionette and uh, people that were so rich that they could just spread lies over TV, radio or, or letters, mailings, you know, that, you know, your father, uh, th this candidate uh, was sued for medical malpractice, however, million dollars. And it wasn't true. It was just a lie. But once the election's over, they just take the $10,000 fine or $100,000 fine or whatever it is, and, and they have a good laugh about it. And that's that's the real world of politics in real life. Thank you, for, it, for mentioning the, thank you for mentioning the cost to my family. I appreciate that. It means a great deal to me that you're thinking of my family. Well, it, it, it's a it's a vicious world, and so it's not just you that's taking it on. It's it's your family and and uh, they deserve credit for that. Um, I, I know all too well. But in any event, we'll talk again. I appreciate you guys coming on, and uh, you guys uh, have a nice day. All right. All right. Appreciate you. you. All right. So um, it's now one twelve. I, I went way over. Time flies when you're having fun. Anyways. Uh, thank you for watching. Um, check out my blog at thecivilrightslawyer.com. 
And if you need to email me or contact me, it's possible we might still take a new uh, another plaintiff or two on this lawsuit that we're going to file against the governor, hopefully soon. That's going to include legislators. It's going to include at least one restaurant and hopefully at least one um, barber slash uh, hair salon. And, and those are the two industries that really were attacked hard during all this. Um, but I would consider adding others. Um, my email is jhb at johnbryanlaw.com. Um, I have other emails. They all end up at the same place. Um, but I appreciate you watching. And uh, until next time. Again, I encourage all businesses that are allowed to open to do so only if they can follow the guidelines to keep West Virginia safe.